chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 1, but let's go to the Lord in prayer before we read. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your mercy. We are grateful, Lord, that though we often need it, it never runs out. Your mercy endures forever. And we're grateful for the gospel. I pray this morning, Father, that you will give us all a fresh glimpse of the gospel. Lord, for those of us who have been saved for many years, I pray that you will renew in our hearts a a heart for the gospel, a reminder of the blessedness of it, as the songs already have begun to do. And Lord, I pray that you will stir our hearts with revival as we remind ourselves of the great love that you have for us and the great work that you have done for us and the great spirit that you have placed within us to continue that work until the day of redemption. And Father, I pray this morning for anyone here who has never received the message of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died to be their Savior. I pray that this will be the day that they will see this truth for the first time in a saving way and that, Lord, they will trust you as their Savior. I pray, Lord, that we will be changed by our time together this morning and I pray that your word will quicken us, that your spirit will quicken us, that you will work in us and draw us to yourself to that high and holy place that you have invited us to in these days of revival. We pray and we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." In the summer of 1961, Coach Vince Lombardi gathered his team of Green Bay Packers together. They had lost the championship game the season before to the Philadelphia Eagles. And he gathered his team together. He set them all down, and he stood in the middle of them, and he picked up a football, and he held it up, and he famously said, Guys, we're starting with the basics. This is a football. (laughs) One of the wide receivers cracked back and said, hold on, coach, you're going too fast. Paul is getting ready to give what is the clearest summary of the gospel and the doctrine of Christianity that is given in completely in any one book of the Bible in the epistle to the Romans. He is writing to a church that he's never met before. This is not a church that Paul founded, but he is planning to go there, and as he writes to them, he's going to present the gospel in its clarity. And as he does so, he starts with the basics. He starts with the most simple thing. Here is the gospel. The gospel is essential for every single one of us. We understand that we must receive the gospel to be saved, to have our sins forgiven, to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, to know that we have a place in heaven. But the gospel is something that must continually be at work in our lives not to keep us saved or not to make us more saved, but for us to keep our focus on what is essential, 
to keep our focus on what are the fundamentals, to keep our attention and our heart aglow with the fire of a love for God. You'll remember that the church in Ephesus in Revelation, their great need for revival was that they had left their first love. Now, the first love of a believer is a love for the Savior. But that love for the Savior begins when we understand and receive the message of the gospel. So in a very real sense, the gospel is essential for believers because it is, first of all, it's the source of revival. A renewed heart for the gospel is at the source of every great revival that's taken place. You look at the great awakenings and you look at the amazing revivals that have taken place and it's been times when the church has just slowly drifted away from the truth of the gospel. And as people, as God's people began to get their minds back on the gospel, you began to see a stirring and a revival within the church. I'm convinced that as we turn our hearts and minds to the gospel and focus on the truth of what God has done for us, to think about the message of grace that God has extended to us, it will renew our love for the Savior. And it will revive our hearts to see that what God has given to us in the gospel is far better than anything that this world pulls us to. Then the gospel is also the, the stream of revival as it begins to work in us And then it's also the outflow of revival. It's where, as revival takes place, we have a renewed heart for sharing the gospel. We have a renewed heart for inviting others to hear the gospel. That's what we've been talking about over these past weeks. This is what this passage reminds us of this morning, the simplicity of the gospel message. So as you look at this passage with me this morning, I hope that you won't automatically just say, oh, well, that's just another gospel message. The gospel should never be just just another topic. I want you to see this. And if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you might have been in church your whole life. You might even identify as a Christian. But if you've never trusted Christ to save you from your sins, then I hope this morning you will take a look at the message of the gospel and understand the power of God unto salvation. I want you to see that Paul, as he presents this gospel. He's going to do several things through this passage, and perhaps in weeks to come we'll look further at these. In the next verses from where we read, he's going to say that the gospel is a mission to be fulfilled, that we are to carry the gospel. And we'll, we'll look at that probably next Sunday as we look at how we carry the gospel out, even as the outflow of revival. He's going to talk about further down into verse 16 and 17 and 18, down to those verses, that the gospel is a miracle to be experienced. But I want you to see in our passage, in our text this morning, that Paul says the gospel is a message to be believed. A message to be believed. Now, he's writing to a church. He's writing to believers. But Paul understands that not everyone who hears his message, not everyone who reads his message is going to be a believer. In fact, he's going to address two different kinds of sinners in the next couple of chapters as he begins to introduce the gospel. In the end of this chapter, chapter 1, he's going to talk about the rebellious sinner. He's going to talk about the one who thinks they can find fulfillment by breaking all the rules, by going against God, by finding satisfaction in the things of this world. And there may be somebody here this morning who is in that case. That's your situation. You have felt like, hey, I can, I can do whatever I want to do. No one's going to tell me what to do. I don't want to follow all those religious rules. And your greatest need, you're, you've not found satisfaction. You've not found 
happiness. You've not found the contentment that you have sought. But then you get into chapter 2, and Paul begins to talk about the religious sinners. He says, hey, don't stand back and look at the Romans 1 sinner and think, hey, I'm pretty good because I've kept all the rules. He speaks to the one, he says, you that have the law, you that have had the law of God, and you think because you've kept the law that you're somehow better than the person who's broken all the rules. And that's not the case either. And then he comes to chapter 3 and he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, we might walk out here in the parking lot and find some gravel, and we might say, all right, which one of us can throw a rock all the way to done? Some of us would probably throw it maybe out of the parking lot. I'm not quite sure my arm could throw much of anything anymore. I probably wouldn't be able to lift my arm for the next two days if I even tried to throw it. Some of you might actually get it across some of the trees, but I'll guarantee you that not one of us are going to throw a rock from here to done. And there are those who maybe live a little better than others, and they live a little more righteous than others, and we may look at each other and say, hey, I live better than this person. But Paul breaks all of that down and says, all have sinned and fall short. It doesn't matter how good a life you live, you still are going to fall short of the glory of God. And so the gospel is a message that must be believed. When we look at this passage, it's it's a message to be believed, first of all, because of the evidence for the gospel. Paul addresses first the mind. Now, we understand that you can have a head knowledge of the gospel and not truly have been converted. Do we know that? We understand that. There are many people who have all the head knowledge that they need. They know how to, they may even have explained to someone else how to receive the gospel. They know the plan of salvation, they know those things but they don't have it in the heart. But let me just say that it never will get to my heart if it doesn't first get to my head. Faith cometh first by hearing. I have to hear it. It has to enter my mind. And so Paul says, look, here, I want you to know these things are true. This is common in the New Testament. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke says, I've researched these things out and I'm writing this gospel so that you'll know that the things that you have heard are true. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, he'll list off for the resurrection all these eyewitnesses that have been seen. Why? Because there needs to be evidence that this is true. Christianity is the only faith that is dependent not just on the teachings of its, of its originator, it's not just the teachings of its founder, it is on historical events, things that actually took place. If Jesus did not actually die on the cross, we have no hope of salvation. If Jesus did not actually rise from the dead, we have no hope of salvation. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ be not risen, our hope, our faith is in vain. But Christ is risen. How did he know he was risen? Because not only had he heard from eyewitnesses, he himself had seen. And that's what he says here. He even identifies himself as an apostle, verse 1. Called to be an apostle. Given an apostleship, verse 5. What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that he saw Christ. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, he lists off all those that saw Christ. And he says, and last of all, me, as one born out of due time. Paul saw the risen Christ. And he knew what a radical transformation took place in Paul's life. 
The same radical transformation that takes place in our life when we grasp by faith that Jesus Christ not only died for our sins, but that he rose from the dead. Notice what he says in verse 4. This resurrection was God declaring Jesus to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection, the eyewitnesses, those that saw it. There were individuals that saw him. There were small groups of people that saw him. There were great numbers, over 500, Paul says. Men saw him, women saw him, young saw him, old saw him. And every possible explanation that the world has come up with for the resurrection of Christ to try to explain it away is countered by the eyewitness accounts that Jesus, that Jesus orchestrated, that God orchestrated to see those, to be those who would see Christ as he was risen from the dead. So Paul is saying, look, this is a message to be believed. There is solid evidence. Not only does the resurrection eyewitnesses point to the believability but the fulfilled prophecy, notice what he says in verse 2, which he promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Do you know that there are countless, I won't say countless, but there's numbers of Old Testament prophecies that point to Jesus Christ. The New Testament helps us out and points out some of those. You'll be reading through and it says, this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. You remember those verses that point us to that? 61 specific prophecies in the Old Testament that point to Jesus Christ and are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Now that sounds, okay, that's a, that's a lot of prophecies. But what is that, exactly does that mean? How is that evidence? You see, we live in a day when people are, many people are saying, look, I, you know, I, I believe Jesus existed, but I don't believe he was the Son of God. We are living in a day when people are approaching the gospel in a very similar way to those who did in this day, in Paul's day. We don't believe in a resurrection. We don't believe that this took place. We don't believe that there was anything special about Jesus. And Paul says, look, the prophecies pointed toward Jesus. 61. Someone has taken to try to understand the probability that this could have happened by chance. 61 prophecies. Okay, well, let's, let's do a little math with that. I'm, I'm no math genius, but I, I, I do read some people who are. And if you took eight of those 61 prophecies, just eight of them, and did the math on what are the chances, what, are the, what is the probability that eight prophecies would be fulfilled in one person? Now, it's pretty amazing that one would happen in one person, but eight. When I take the 61, just the 8, it is 1 in 1 with 17 zeros is the chance that 8 prophecies would be fulfilled in one person. 1 out of 1 with 17 zeros. I'm not even sure what illion that is, but that's a really big illion. It's not a million or a billion. It's some kind of, some of you intelligent people can fill me in after the service on what it is. But 1 with 17 zeros. Now, that's just a big number to me. That's sort of like, you know, how much money the government's going to spend probably this year. And so that doesn't really catch on to me that much. So let me give you the illustration that the man who did that math gave. If you took the state of Texas and you covered the state of Texas in silver dollars two feet deep, that's a lot of 
That's a lot of money. That's a lot of silver dollars. And you marked just one of those at random in that whole state of Texas. You take someone and you blindfold them and you fly over Texas and just at random you land a, a helicopter and you land and you put them out and they could walk around just wherever they wanted to walk all over Texas and blindfolded reach down and pick up one of those silver dollars. The chance that they would pick up the one that you marked is the chance that eight prophecies would be fulfilled in one person. And yet 61 were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. People talk about, oh, I don't have enough faith to believe in Jesus. Let me tell you, it takes a lot more faith to believe that that happened by chance than it does to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. Paul says, look, here's the message of the gospel. And we've got eyewitnesses that saw the resurrection. I was an eyewitness. If we went to court with over 500 witnesses that said we saw the same thing, that would be very strong, very strong evidence. If we had the kind of fulfilled prophecy, this kind of evidence, it is not a leap of faith, though it requires faith to be saved. It is not a leap of faith. It is not closing my eyes to the facts and the truths and historical veracity to say that the gospel is true. There are some people that are afraid, if I trust Jesus Christ, I've got I've to just check my brain at the door because that's what Christians do. Let me tell you, that is not the case. That is not the case. I'm glad that faith touches my mind. It, it is in the belief. It is in my mind. I know this to be true. It is a message to be believed. But the gospel must never stop with just our minds. It must never stop with simply believing these things to have taken place. Do you know that most people in this world that have done any study in this at all believe that Jesus lived? There's a few outliers who say, oh, Jesus never even existed. He was made up. They'll believe that Jesus lived. Many of them even believe that Jesus died. They'll even believe that the evidence points to the fact that he possibly rose from the dead but they do not have saving faith. There may be someone here this morning that you would acknowledge most of what's true about the gospel message. You know it to be true. You know you've heard it, you've, you've studied it, you've read it, you've heard it preached, but there's never been a time when you have trusted in Jesus Christ to be your Savior, to believe that He died on the cross for your sins, and to trust Him for forgiveness. And that's because it's never moved from your mind to your heart. Someone has said that the difference, the distance between heaven and hell is often about 18 inches, the distance between the mind and the heart. And so Paul will secondly address not just the evidence for the gospel, but he explains the essence of the gospel. What is the essence of the gospel? And this is very simple, folks. You know this. The essence of the gospel. Notice what he says about the plan of salvation. It is the eternal plan of God. He says that this was the son of this, his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God. God is the one who initiated the plan of salvation. 
This is contrary to our culture. Our culture says that man is basically good on the inside and what's going to solve his problems will come from the outside. If we can just correct the environment around the person, if we can just um, get them out of poverty, if we can just provide education. And listen, in saying this, I'm not saying that it's wrong to educate people. I'm not saying that it's wrong to try to help people rise from impoverished conditions. I'm not saying that we should not minister to the physical needs of people, but you can minister to the physical needs of a person and not have changed what's drastically wrong and dramatically wrong in their heart. The gospel says what's wrong is within man, and what will solve his problems will come from outside. It will come from above. That's the message of the gospel, that every one of us are sinners, that we were born sinners and we were born sinning. The wicked go forth from their mother's womb speaking lies. You don't have to teach a child. You don't, even have, you don't have to teach an, a, an infant even to know how to selfishly manipulate their parents. Now, I, I love babies. I love little children. But you know that the biggest liar in the world is a baby. Now, I know that that's going to offend some maybe grandparents, and you just think there's nothing like those little cherubs and little angels. But... The parents in the room, will, well, you'll, say, you'll know to say amen because you find out very quickly that a child can convince you that something is terribly, terribly wrong with them if they think you'll do what they want them to do. And you don't have to teach them to do it. You don't have to teach a child to be selfish. You don't have to teach a child to lie. You don't have to teach a child as they get older to cheat. You don't have to teach. Why? Because we are born sinners and we are born sinning. And because of that, we are separated from God. And yet, God, in his plan, said, I will solve what is wrong within humanity. What was the plan? Well, it's very clear in these verses that Jesus Christ would come. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is the person of the gospel? Paul tells us two things. First of all, he was human. Look in verse 3. The gospel which God promised by his prophets, verse 3, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. He was of the seed of David. He was Jewish. He was a descendant of David, the tribe of Judah. But he came in the flesh. Can you imagine the magnitude of this? Think with me about this just for a moment. That God would become flesh. We've, we've, we've heard that truth so much that God came in a human form and we've celebrated Christmas and we know this to be true, but we've, we've talked about it so much that we often lose the magnitude and the significance of this, that God came in the flesh, the God of the universe, the God that we were separated from. He's the one that initiated this plan. He's the one that came to where we were to bring us to himself. He was in the flesh. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. 
But the second truth is the second truth of that verse, yet without sin. Not only was he human, but he was also God. Verse 4, he was declared to be the Son of God with power. Declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit, according to the Spirit of holiness. Verse 3 said he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, but here he's the Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness. He was the Son of David, but he was the Son of God. He was not just human. He was not just a good man. There are many people who are willing to accept the fact or say, I believe that Jesus was a great teacher. I believe that Jesus was a good man. I believe that Jesus was a martyr for a good cause. But they are not willing to accept the fact that Jesus was more than a man. Jesus was God. Jesus would say, I and the Father are one. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was very clear. As one well-known writer has put it, he did not leave us the option to just view him as a good person. He doesn't leave us that. Either he is a liar, he is a lunatic, he is crazy, or he is Lord. And there is no evidence whatsoever that he was a liar. There's no evidence whatsoever that he was crazy, that he was a lunatic. And all the evidence points to the fact that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. And that is the means of our salvation. That God came as a man. That Jesus was just as much human as you and I are human. And he was as much God as God is God. And he came to this earth... And he went to the cross, and he went through and suffered all all that was there at the cross. And he did it because of his love for you and me. And it is only through trusting him that you and I can be saved. It is only through believing in Jesus Christ that we can have eternal life. And when we do, we rest in the assurance that all is well with God. I stand in right relationship with God this morning, not because of what I've done. Do you know what that does to comfort my heart? I cannot imagine going through this life constantly struggling and wondering, does God love me today? Am I his child today? Am I in the family today? You see, my relationship with God is not based on anything that I've done. My relationship with God is based completely on what Jesus Christ has done. This morning, if you're trusting in anything apart from that, if you're trusting in being a member of a church, if you're trusting in being a Baptist, if you're trusting in being a member of Central Baptist Church, one day you may stand before God and God will say, I'm sorry, I never knew you. You may be trusting in good works, I've done a lot of good deeds. I've been a pretty good person. You may be trusting in being born into a Christian family. Well, all my family were Christians. I've just always, I talked to someone not too long back, and that was their answer. And I tried by the grace of God to help them understand and see, but I could not seem to get through their mind that they were going to heaven because they had always been in church and always understood the gospel and always always been a good person. Let me tell you, 
God doesn't have any grandchildren. I am grateful for godly parents who knew Jesus Christ and who led me to Christ. But I will not get into heaven because my mom and dad are Christians. I will only enter into God's heaven because if I stand before him and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? I will say, because I trusted in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I believed that he died for my sins and he has forgiven me. That's the only way. That's the essence of the message of the gospel. The gospel is a message to be believed. But it is not merely mental assent. It's not just acknowledging it to be so. It is trusting it to be so. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning. And maybe this morning, as you're here in this service, you have never, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've been in church, maybe you're a member of a church, maybe you may have to just swallow some pride. But God created us to be with him. Our sins separate us from him. Those sins cannot be removed by our good deeds. And paying the price for our sin, Jesus died and rose again. And everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. Right now, right where you are, here's what I ask you to do. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe that he died for you on the cross and trust in him alone to forgive you for your sins. The moment you do this, the moment you do this, you are adopted into the family of God and you enter, enter into a permanent eternal, personal relationship with Him. If you're trusting in Jesus today, a way that you can express this is by simply praying something like this. And it's not a prayer that saves you. Saying this prayer will not save you. It's the faith that you have placed in Jesus that will save you. But a way to express that is simply praying maybe a prayer something like this. Dear God, Thank you so much for sending your son to die in my place for my sins. I believe that Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose again. I trust in him to forgive me for all of my sins. I receive your gift of eternal life through faith right now. If you prayed that prayer, that prayer did not save you. But the faith that you place in Jesus does. If you trusted Christ this morning, here's what I want to invite you to do in a moment when we have our invitation. The music will play and we'll be standing at that moment. But I invite you to walk down to the front from wherever you are, one of the balconies or in the back or anywhere in this room. But walk down to the front and tell one of our pastors. We want to rejoice with you in your, found, in your faith in Christ. This morning, maybe you've trusted Christ, but maybe the 
the message of the gospel and the glory of the gospel has not been quite as fresh in your heart and mind. I believe when it's fresh and warm in our hearts, we're a lot quicker to share it. We're a lot quicker to rejoice in it. So maybe this morning you need to come and say, God, I'm sorry that I've let the fire in my heart grow cold. Or maybe you just need to come and kneel at this altar and say, God, thank you for saving me. I was a I was a wretch. Thank you for saving a wretch like me. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your mercy. Whatever God may speak to your heart about this morning, I invite you to come. But if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, please don't hesitate to come and let us know. Father, speak to our hearts in this invitation, I pray. 